0: First Thessalonians chapter five tells us the makeup of man. Paul said, as he's inspired by the Holy Ghost, "And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly or completely." And I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, when Paul says that this is the wholeness or the whole, the, the completeness of man, he's saying this is man's total makeup. It tells us how man is made. You remember in the beginning, God said, let us make man in our own image. Well, what does that mean? Uh, the Bible says after, man's, uh, after God's likeness and in his image, he was made. Well, likeness and image must be different things. Otherwise, why would it say it twice? Now, likeness and image means uh, one translation says instead of likeness, it says sameness. In other words, God made man as close to himself as he possibly could. And the angels were astonished when he did so. The Bible says in Psalms that the angels looked at the creation and says, What is man that thou art mindful of him? So man was made in a different class of being than the angels. If not, then the angels wouldn't have been astonished at this. Man was a totally new creature, a totally new creation. Well, the reason that he was new and the reason that he was something that was shocking to the angels was because he was made in the image or the likeness of God. He was made in the same class of being as God himself. Well, Jesus said in John chapter 4 that God is a spirit. If man is made in the image or the sameness of God, then by necessity, by definition, man would have to be a spirit being. Well, that's what the Holy Ghost is telling us through the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5.23. The very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank God he's coming again. I believe he's coming soon. But it tells us the makeup of man, spirit, soul, and body. We say it this way sometimes for clarity. Man is a spirit being. He has a soul or he possesses a soul and he lives in a body. Now, you don't hear this verse of scripture referred to very often, but when you do in church circles, most people do it backwards. Most people quote it backwards, body, soul, and spirit. And the reason for that is because most people, most Christians are more body conscious than they are anything else. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. Now in Romans chapter 8, it tells us a little bit about being led by the Spirit of God. Verse 14, it says, For as many as are led by the Spirit, meaning the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. In other words, it's telling us that every child of God has a right, I believe a responsibility, to be led by the Holy Spirit. Verse 16 tells you how that's going to happen. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits, not our bodies and not our minds, which would be a part of the soul. But the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. In other words, the Bible is telling us that there's one and one primary way, one main way that the Holy Ghost will lead you, and that's through your spirit, bearing witness with your spirit. If we don't know we're spirit beings, if we're not conscious of what it, uh, what constitutes spiritual direction or spiritual guidance then how are we going to know how to be effectively led by the holy ghost spirit of god the bible says in john chapter 16 verse 13 jesus said how be it when he the spirit of truth has come he'll guide you into all truth one translation says he'll guide you into all reality what jesus said in praying in john chapter 17 before he went to the cross he said sanctify them meaning the church not only the disciples that he had at the time but for for all of those that'll believe on Jesus through their word, which is everybody that's saved. He said, sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. So the Holy Ghost is going to guide you into the truth, and the word is truth. He's going to guide you into the word. But he's going to do that from your spirit. He's going to do that from your spirit. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 27 is our third text scripture, our third opening for the text scripture. And that is, it says this, the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord. One translation says light. Or lamp of the Lord. It was the only means of of, uh, illumination that they had in the day that it was written. It was a means whereby you could find your way in the dark. It was a means whereby you could see something revealed that you would not otherwise know was there. And that's what it's talking about. It says the spirit of man, not the body of man and not the soul of man. Is the candle of the Lord. God uses your spirit to enlighten you. God uses your spirit to reveal himself to you. The spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly. Now turn with me over to John chapter 3. Let me show you something here. I've got about six different uh, avenues that I want to go this morning, and I can't go all of them, at least not in the time that we have. So we'll just start down one path and see where we come out. John chapter 3 tells us about uh, a man named Nicodemus. And the Bible says that he was a ruler of the Jews. Verse 1 says he was a ruler of the Jews. Now, what that means is he was the ruler of the synagogue. He was one of the Jewish leaders. He may have been one of the Pharisees. He may have been one of the council that uh, was responsible for taking Jesus captive and crucifying him. But it, at, at any rate, what we know for sure is that Nicodemus was taught in the Old Testament, what we know of as the Old Testament, the law of Moses and the prophets. He knew what the Bible said about the Messiah to come. And he comes to to Jesus by night. He was afraid of the other uh, members of the council, I guess. And it says there was a man named Nicodemus, a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know. Now notice what it says in verse 2. Notice what Nicodemus says he knows. Master or Rabbi we know that thou art a teacher come from God for because no man can do these miracles ex- that thou doest except God be with him. Now what is he saying? He's saying we know you're from God because you're operating on different, on a different plane and a different level than anybody has ever done before. We know that you've got to be from God because of the things that we're seeing take place, the miracles and the signs and wonders and the healings and so forth, all of those things that are taking place in front, of our, in front of our eyes that we're witnessing with our own two eyes can't be done naturally. In other words, he says, we know you come from God because you're doing spiritual things that are spectacular in our, in our uh, vision, point of view. In other words, whether he knows it or not, what he's saying is, you're operating from a different plane, a different dimension than anybody has ever done before. That's got to be God. He's not saying we know you come from God because you're the strongest man we've ever seen. He's not saying we know you come from God because you're the smartest guy we've ever seen. He's not saying we know you've come from God because of some natural circumstance that takes place every time you come, into the, uh, come down the road. I mean it's not like he's snow white and birds sing and follow him through the woods and all that kind of stuff. Now, that's not what's causing them to know that he's from God. What's causing them to know that he's from God is that there's supernatural, even spectacular power at work through Jesus. Where does that come from? All he knows is God. All he knows is from God. So, folks, please understand, unless people have changed from that time to now, people recognize God by miracles. Now, since God knows that people don't change, why would he want it to be different for the people of God to be recognized? Why would he want them to be recognized in a different way than Jesus was recognized? God's still a miracle-working God. Miracles are still available to us today. Now, what does Jesus say? Verse 3. Notice what Jesus says. Jesus answers and says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, I have one question for you that I want you to consider very carefully. Has Jesus changed the subject? If he has, then Nicodemus has every right to go to his friends and say, you know, I went to Jesus and I said, those miracles you're doing, we know you're sent from God. But let me tell you something. These faith preachers are weird. Because he didn't even answer my question. He started talking about something about being born again. Folks, I would submit to you, Jesus has not changed the subject. What he's saying is, this is the entrance to that spiritual and even spectacular, even miraculous plane that you're recognizing that I'm operating from. Now, again, think about what Nicodemus is saying. Nicodemus is saying to Jesus, You act differently than anybody we've ever seen. Well, what's different about Jesus? He's operating from his spirit, he's operating from his spirit. He's operating from the Holy Ghost, the power of God on the inside of him and not just as a natural man. Now, folks, we could spend all morning long talking about this and, and it would be, uh, it'd be worthwhile in one sense, but it would be counterproductive to the point of the message this morning. But please understand that in Philippians chapter 2, the Bible says that Jesus emptied himself of any power and glory he had with the Father before he came to the earth. In other words, Jesus is not operating as the Son of God. He can't be. If he was operating as the Son of God, why did he have to be anointed by the Holy Ghost when John baptized him in the Jordan River? And not only that, this is the real kicker for me. If Jesus is here on the earth operating as the Son of God, now don't get me wrong, he is the Son of God. Was then, is now. But if he's operating on the earth as the Son of God, who can anoint God? that would mean there's one greater than God that is able to anoint him. Well, then how was Jesus able to be anointed? Because he came to the earth, the Bible says, and he operated as a man, as a human being. And until the Holy Ghost came upon him in bodily shape as a dove, when he was baptized by John in the Jordan River, he had no more ability to do a miracle than you did. And folks, if that's not true, then it's impossible for what Jesus said to be reality. It's impossible for what Jesus said about the works that I do shall you do also to be done. The only way those works could be done is if he's operating as a man who's anointed by the Holy Ghost. Because man can now be anointed by the Holy Ghost today. But if he's saying, if the Bible is teaching us that Jesus is doing miracles because he's the Son of God, how is anybody going to do the miracles of the Son of God? It's impossible. So the very fact that he tells his disciples and you and me too. The works that I do shall you do also and even greater works than these. Greater works. I'm not sure what the greater works are. But he said and even greater works than these shall you do because I go unto my father. If he's doing those works and miracles here on the earth because he's the son of God. That's impossible for anybody to do anything greater than him. Wouldn't that be true? It would have to be. So what is the answer? The answer is Jesus is a man operating under the power of the Holy Ghost just like man can operate under the power of the Holy Ghost today. So back to Nicodemus and his quandary. He says, we know that you've come from God because of the miracles. And Jesus, not changing the subject, tells him this is the source of the miracles. You must be born again. You must be born again. Now, folks, remember Nicodemus has been trained in the law uh, Law and the Prophets he may have the same training that paul had he may have the same training that the high priest had we know he's had extensive training at the very least because he's a ruler of the synagogue he's a member of the pharisaical council so we know he has extensive training in the old testament and he's baffled by this concept he starts thinking naturally he says can a man be born again can he enter back into his mother's womb and be born the second time see he's thinking naturally Jesus is talking spiritual things, and Nicodemus is thinking naturally. And Jesus says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So what's he saying? He's saying the new birth is a spiritual birth. He's saying that the necessity for mankind is a spiritual rebirth. Now, folks, hold your finger here and turn back with Well, I guess we're through here. We can just refer back to it. Turn with me over to to Ephesians chapter 2. Let me show you what the Bible says about man and his condition. Most people think that, uh, that man's problem is sin. And I'm talking about unsaved mankind. Most people think the problem with the world and the problem with mankind as a whole is sin. It's not. Your problem before you got saved was not that you were a sinner. Well, then what was my problem? The Bible tells you in Acts chapter, or in uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. Notice it says, after it tells us about Jesus and his work on the cross, and you hath he quickened. The word quickened means to make alive. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Who were dead in trespasses and sins. Folks, the problem with mankind, unsaved man, is not trespasses and sins. The problem is they're dead. In other words, the problem is spiritual death, not sinners. A sinner sins because he's spiritually dead. So the issue is not the sins, the issue is spiritual death. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, it says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. Well, what things passed away, and what things became new? Your appearance doesn't change when you get born again, does it? If you have brown hair before you get saved, you have brown hair after you get saved. If you have no hair before you get saved, you still have no hair after you get saved. It's not physical things that change. It's not physical things that become new. Well, what about mental things? What about things of the soul? Your emotions don't change. Your intellect doesn't change. As a matter of fact, it might be enhanced. But if you have an interest in sports before you get saved, you have the same interest in sports after you get saved. If you have an aptitude, a special aptitude in math before you get saved, the same aptitude in math is there afterwards. Again, it may be even enhanced by the life of God inside of you. So it's not mental things. It's not things of the soul that are changed. It's not things of the body that are changed. Well, there's only one other part of man that could be changed. The spirit of man is made new. And that's what Jesus is talking about. You must be born again. Jesus does not say to Nicodemus, here's the problem, you've got to quit sinning. No, he says you must be born again. You must be born again. Now, what takes place as a result of being born again? Well, John said it this way, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 14, he said, we know, everybody say we know. He didn't say we think so, he didn't say we hope so. He said, we know that we passed from death to life. Death to life. You remember in uh, the Garden of Eden when God put Adam and Eve in the middle of things? And he says, you can eat of every fruit of the tree. Everything is here for you. But there's one that you're commanded not to eat of. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Now, he can't be talking about physical death. The problem with most of the church world is whenever we read the word death in the Bible, we think physical death. And very seldom is the Bible talking about physical death when it uses the word death. They didn't die physically. They didn't die. For, and Adam didn't die for 930 years after he ate of the fruit of the tree. We don't know how long he was in the garden of Eden before he ate of the fruit of the tree, but at the point that he ate and man fell, at the point he spiritually died, we start time begins. The counting of time began at that point. And the Bible says that Adam lived to be 930 years. It took 930 years for physical death to overtake the man that was created in the image of God. The man who was made spiritually alive when he was created. Folks, let me ask you a question. Who's got a greater sense of life or a greater measure of life? Adam when he was created in the beginning? Or you and me who have been born again by the Spirit of God? You've got more than Adam had. Now, I don't think I'm saying everybody can live to be 930. God put a limit on things after a while. Even God said, I'm tired of man living so long. We're going to have to cut this back. (laughs) But even at that, he gave us 120 to 150 years. Do you know medical science can't figure out why the body wears out before 120 years old? They have determined, they have concluded through their tests that the human body is made to withstand normal wear and tear of 120 years here on the earth. It's almost like God knew what he was talking about. So John said, we have passed from death to life. We know we passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Folks, you need to realize something. Eternal life is not just freedom from sin. Eternal life is the rebirth or the recreation of the human spirit. That's such an important point. Because so much of the church world just thinks the new birth or eternal life is about freedom from sin. about eternal life now the rest of first john chapter 3 and verse 14 this one will blow your mind if you think from a natural standpoint john said we know that we pass from death to life because we love the brethren the evidence that we passed from spiritual death into eternal life is the love of god in our heart for other people then the rest of the verse the last part of the verse says he that loveth not his brother abideth in death now, to abide means to remain or to live. So he's saying, if you don't love your brother, you're living in death. What does he mean? He can't be talking about physical life. He's talking about uh, remi- uh, remaining or abiding in spiritual death. Let me show you how this works. Turn back with me to Ephesians, uh, to, uh, what's his name? Ezekiel, chapter 36. You know those six paths I told you I was going down? Or had a desire to go? Here's another one. Here's a new one. Maybe it was seven. Ezekiel chapter 36. I want you to see what Ezekiel prophesied about the new birth. About passing from spiritual death into spiritual life. See, as I said, most of the church world, most people on the earth think of death as being in physical terms only. They think death means the cessation of existence but it doesn't death in the Bible means separation from God see the reality is because you're made in the image of God you're going to live forever you the man on the inside is going to live forever the only question is are you going to live joined and united to God or separated from God for eternity I've made the joke many times but it's it's like the old real estate thing the key to eternal life is three things location, location, location because that's what it comes down to. It's only through Jesus that we can be united with God. It's only through Jesus and his sacrifice that we can be saved, a term that the, bio, that the church world uses frequently. We can Only through the work of Jesus can we be saved from spiritual death. So here's how it works according to the Old Testament prophecy. Ezekiel chapter 36, let's start reading in verse 25. Then will I sprinkle clean water, God speaking first person, then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all of your idols will I cleanse you. Now what's he talking about? He's talking about being saved by the washing of the water by the word. Ephesians chapter 5 says that that's what Jesus does to the church. He washes it with the water of the word. Peter said that we're born again by the incorruptible seed of God's word. In other words, he's saying this is the cleansing that takes place. Now notice the terminology that he uses. This is the cleansing that takes place. It's through the water of the word. In other words, the power of the word of God. Don't think water like we use the term naturally. He's saying we're sprinkled or cleansed by the power of God's word. Now how does that work? Well, remember what Romans 10, 9 and 10 says. It says, if thou shalt believe in thine heart that God, that uh, Jesus died on the cross and that God has raised him from the dead and shall confess him with your mouth as Lord and Savior, you shall be saved. So what's the power of the word that saves us? The confession that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. The confession that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. Now, folks, I want you to understand something. The power of the word that saves you doesn't come from God. It comes from you. God's the one that gave us the truth and the record of the truth of what Jesus did. But unless you choose to speak something from your heart, from the inside of you, from the spirit being that you've been made, then nothing changes. But should you choose to do that, and most of us have here, maybe all of us have, but when we chose to do that, the power of the word was sufficient to change us from a spiritually dead being To a spiritually alive being. The greatest miracle that can occur is the the new birth. Now, but because we think naturally, we get hung up on things. We think, well, yeah, I'm born again, but I I have need of healing in my body. God, why can't you do a miracle in my body? He's already done the greatest miracle that there is and changed you spiritually. He made you a new creature, a new creation. Miracles in the flesh, miracles in the natural realm should be easy if we understand the miracles that have already taken place and the power of the word that brought them about. Are you out there? Do you understand what I'm saying? So he said, then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, mean the word of God, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and all your idols will I cleanse you. Now notice what that new birth does. Verse 26, a new heart Whenever the word is used in the Bible, most of the time at least, when the word word heart is used in the Bible, it's talking about the spirit of man. A new heart or a new spirit also will I give you, and a new spirit, you can see he's talking about a spirit here, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. In other words, he says, I'll take away the hard heart from you, the spiritually dead heart out of you, the spiritually dead spirit, the spirit that's dead to God because he's separated from me, I'll replace that with a new spirit that's tender and open to the things of God. Now keep that in mind, the stony heart. Keep that in mind because in the Old Testament, the law of Moses was written or the Ten Commandments were written on the tables of stone. That has a spiritual significance, folks. Nowadays, they're not written on tables of stone. They're written in our hearts, in our spirits. A new heart will I also give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you. God saying, I'll put my spirit inside that new spirit that I create. And cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. Turn with me over to Jeremiah chapter 31. Here's what Jeremiah prophesied about the new birth. Verse 33. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts. Couldn't be that way under the Old Covenant. Couldn't be that way. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. There's the Spirit. The Spirit is the inward part of man. And write it in their hearts and it will be their God and they shall be my people. Now notice what the result is in verse 34. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord for they shall all know me notice that the new spirit and the law of god written in your heart causes an inward knowing the spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we're the children of god an inward knowing of jesus and the lord the bible says in uh, in john chapter 10 jesus is talking about um, uh Good, being the good shepherd and so forth, he said, uh, My sheep hear and know my voice, and a stranger they'll not follow, for they know not the voice of the strangers. Now most people read those ver- verses of Scripture and they think about hearing or listening to the voice of God. And they're searching for something that they can hear with their natural ears. And as a result, a lot of people get pulled away into thinking that circumstances are determined uh, by, by God and, and that circumstances show you which way God wants to lead you in life. And nothing could be farther from the truth. No, he doesn't say that my people shall hear my voice, meaning from the physical ear. He said it's an inward knowing of the voice of God, the inward witness. My sheep hear and know my voice, and a stranger they'll not follow because they know not the voice of strangers. Anything you're wondering about is not the voice of God. Now, what happens is a lot of times we want to hear the voice of God the way that we want to hear it. And so we say, well, I wonder if God's speaking to me about this. As soon as you ask that question, you can answer it, no. Because if he was speaking to you about something, you'd know it. And the fact that you don't know it means he's not speaking to you. Now, the devil will talk to you with questions. The devil will say, just like he did to Eve in the Garden of Eden, has God said, has God really forbidden you to eat of this tree? The devil always comes with questions. God always comes with answers. The things that you know are the things that God's trying to lead you in and impress upon you from your inside, from the the inside of you, from your spirit. The Holy Spirit bearing witness with your spirit. Those are the things that God is speaking to you about. Now, I wish those things happened every day, but they don't. We look at a deadline or we look at something that we want to happen, and we think, well, Lord, I need you to speak to me about this. And we really don't, because in most cases we already know what we should or shouldn't do. But we might not like what we know that we should or shouldn't do, so we want to get a second opinion. So maybe if we talk to God about it a little bit, he'll fudge or alter his course a little bit maybe. But that's not the way it works. God gives you an inward knowing about what to do. Well, Pastor Mike, I don't know either way. Then don't do anything. One of the things that frustrates my staff more than anything in the world is that I won't move until I know. And I don't know nearly soon enough for a lot of them. But I won't move. I learned that from Brother Hagin. And folks, I was on the other side of the street with him, but he used to frustrate me to no end. Because we'd have direction, and us young kids, we'd all have it all figured out. Here's what we need to do. Dad, here's what we need to do. And he said, Well, I'll pray about it. A month goes by, and every week we're asking, What do you think, Dad? It's time to do it. The window is closing. He said, I'm not clear in my heart about it yet. We're thinking, Well, that's just dumb. (laughs) We're clear. Some of us even went so far as to say, well, the Lord's spoken to us about it. Dad, just stay steady. Just stay steady. Get down to the last minute. If he didn't know, he wouldn't move. In many cases, the deadline would pass. And then we'd see after the fact why it was the right thing not to do it. And there were times we'd look at each other and shake our heads and say, man, if we had done what we wanted to do, what a mess it would have caused. And here's dad, he's just floating down through life, just waiting on God. Well, some of that started to rub off, slowly but surely. So what if you don't know what to do? Don't do anything. Yeah, but we've got to do something. That's what gets you in trouble. Yeah, but we've got to do something. Folks, let me ask you for a show of hands. How many of you have made mistakes by acting too quickly? Look at that, almost everybody in the room. Now let me ask you another question. How many of you have made mistakes by not acting quickly enough? One or two? Look at the difference. Most of the mistakes I've made in life have been, have been uh, mistakes I've made in haste, thinking I've got to get something done. And those things cause me trouble. Back to Jeremiah And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest saith the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Now notice again in verse 31 he said I will put my law in their inward parts that means the spirit of man I'll put my law in their inward parts and write it my law my word write it in their hearts. How does God write his word in your heart? If the responsibility is God's to write the word of God in your heart, then why do some people have a greater measure of the word than other people? Does God just like some people better and so he gives them more of the written word in their heart? Or more of the word written in their heart? Is that how it works? Turn with me over to Psalm 45. Let me show you how God writes the word of God in your heart. Psalm 45. Verse 1, to the chief musician upon something, for the sons of Korah, Maskell, a song of loves. My heart is inditing a good matter. Now, the word inditing means to gush forth or to speak. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to speak of good things. I'm going to speak of good things. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. In other words, the king he's talking about is a representation of Jesus, an illustration of Jesus. So he's saying, I'm going to speak of good things concerning the Lord. Now, notice how he does this. He says, my tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Now, put those things together. God said, I'll write my law in their hearts. I'll put my word in their inward parts and write my law in their hearts. How does God write his law in your heart? Through your tongue. Through your tongue. Not through your intellect. See, the Bible gives us a little hint about the difference between soul and spirit back in Proverbs chapter three and verse five. It says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Well, trust means to believe, doesn't it? That's the same thing the New Testament says. Romans ten, 10, 10 says, With the heart man believeth unto righteousness. And with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. With the heart, the spirit, man believes. Under righteousness, in other words, to believe to be saved. That's what Nicodemus couldn't do. He couldn't believe from his heart. Jesus is telling him the importance of being born again, and all he can do is think naturally. So what does the Bible tell us to do? Proverbs 3, 5, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and lean not to your own understanding. So there's got to be a difference between your heart or your spirit, and your understanding. Now everybody understands what the word understanding means. It means the intellectual or reasoning faculties of the of the man. So he's saying, trust in the Lord from your spirit, and not just how you've got things reasoned out. Now, folks, please understand something: if you can only believe God to the degree that you understand Him or can reason Him out, you are going to be hopelessly confused in life. You're never going to be led into the truth of the things of God. You're never going to be led into God's victory. You're never going to be led into the things that Jesus has already purchased for you and that's exactly where most of the church world is today. They don't understand something so they don't accept what the Bible says. They don't understand why it doesn't work the way that they think the Bible says it should work so they make excuses for it instead of believing the word from their heart. What does believing the word from your heart mean? Well, the basic definition I would think, I'm sure there are many that we could give, but one basic definition would be to believe the word of God is true no matter what else is going on. No matter what. Believe God's word is true no matter what. That means the word of God, if the word of God says, and it does, that Jesus bore our infirmities and took our sicknesses and with his stripes were healed, that means that's true no matter what the doctor says. But that's a great example where people get tripped up. They say, well, the Bible says that I was healed by the stripes of Jesus, but the doctor says that I've got cancer. So I guess I've got cancer. What are they doing? They're leaning to their understanding. They're leaning to their own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not to your own understanding. Now, there's another verse of Scripture in Proverbs that's interesting because it shows the difference of when you start committing yourself to the truth of God and the truth of His Word. It says it this way. It says, wisdom rests in the heart of him that hath understanding. So wisdom is not of the mind. Wisdom is of the heart, the spirit. Wisdom rests in the heart of him that hath understanding. What does that mean? That means your understanding can be the gate to your spirit. That means if we choose to let our tongue be the pen of a ready writer. If we choose to renew our mind to the word by speaking God's word into our hearts. That means that can be the doorway to wisdom being deposited from within our spirits. There's a, in 1959, Brother Hagen had a vision. Jesus came into his room. And sat down and talked to him for an hour and a half. Now, there are different kinds of visions. For example, there, there's a, a spiritual vision. There's a trance. Three types of visions, as the Bible refers to in the New Testament. One is a spiritual vision. Another is a trance. And the third is an open vision. Now, a spiritual vision is something you see with your eyes closed. You may remember that when uh, Paul's experience with Jesus, meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus, he talked about the light that shined from heaven that was brighter than the noonday sun. He fell off the animal that he was riding and, and uh, heard a voice, and it was Jesus. He asked who it was. Jesus said, it's Jesus whom you persecute and so forth. Gave him direction. After that it was over, the Bible says, and when our eyes were opened, Paul recognized that he wasn't able to see. So everything that he had, the vision that he had that changed his life and changed the course of the church, happened with his eyes closed. This is a spiritual vision. A trance is over in uh, Acts chapter 10. An example is in Acts chapter 10 where Peter went up on the housetop waiting for lunch to get ready and he fell into a trance, the Bible says, and he saw in the trance a vision. Now a trance means it's when your physical senses are suspended. Paul's were not. But Peter's were in Acts chapter 10. His physical senses were suspended. There are examples and uh, uh, stories in that, um, uh, of people that God used in this way and uh, that, that things happened to like this. Uh, one was uh, Sister Mary Woodsworth Eder. Now, you may not be familiar with her, her name, and, and, uh, but she was a lady that was used in the 1900s in a great way in healing revivals and so forth. And there would be times, it happened four or five times in her ministry, Over a 30 some odd year period of time. So it wasn't like it was an everyday thing. But there were four or five times in her ministry where she'd be preaching and she'd just stop in mid sentence and she'd be stopping, she'd stop dead still in the way that uh, whatever she was preaching and whatever gestures she was making. And it would be like her body would turn to stone. This became, I mean, she was just frozen in place. It stayed that way in some cases. I think the longest one was for 18 hours. Now, folks. There are some pictures around that have her where she's got her arm raised. You try holding your arm up for 18 hours. I mean, just the physicality of it was—it would be almost impossible. But, the, the, you know, it was something that was, uh, and God uses signs and wonders, and then wonder makes people wonder. That's why they gave it their catchy name. And so it caused people to question, you know, is this really God? Is this real? Is she just putting this on and stuff like that? And so in some places it happened on more than one occasion. In some places it would be some great big rough and tumble guy that said, well, I'll move her. I'll show that this is a fake. And in one place he went up after it happened and news spread around town, you know. Next day he goes in the morning. After hearing the story and the whole town's looking and talking about it and everybody shows up, this guy reaches over and tries to pick her up, couldn't budge her an inch. Here he is, some big bear of a man, you know, and Sister Edder's is just a little bitty frail woman. He couldn't budge her an inch. Tried the second time and fell down flat on the floor and stayed there until she was let up. (laughs) Folks, you can't lift the power of God. And you make a mistake to mess with it. As he found out good news is he got up saved <laughs> so there are times where things like that happen well apparently something like that happened with Peter he saw the vision while he was in the trance his physical senses were suspended he saw the vision of the sheet that was let down by the four corners that had all kinds of animals in it and, and there was a voice that was the Lord that said rise slay and eat and he said not so Lord I've never eaten anything unclean and Jesus said, spoke back to him and said, don't call unclean that which I have cleansed. He's talking about people. He's not telling Peter to eat bacon, although I believe that's divine direction from God. <laughs> but that's just my personal opinion. That's just the word of the Lord to me. Maybe he was said it that way. But he's talking about people. He's saying there is no unclean. The Gentiles are just as cleansed by the blood of Jesus as the Jews if they'll receive him as Lord and Savior. Well, the third type of vision is an open vision. Now, an open vision is most often accompanied by or the result of discerning of spirits, the manifestation of the Spirit of God. In 1 Corinthians 12, is called discerning of spirits. It means to see over into the spirit realm. That's with your eyes wide open. Now, apparently, this is what happened with Paul when he was caught up into the third heaven because he said, whether in the body or out of the body, I can't tell. Well, if his eyes were closed, he'd know. If his eyes were closed, he'd know it was a vision like what he had on the road to Damascus. But he said, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. The only way that's possible is if his eyes were open and it was an open vision. So he didn't know if he was taken physically to heaven or if his spirit left his body, so to speak. And he just went in spirit. Well, this experience I was telling you about with Brother Hagin in 1959 where the Lord came into his room and talked to him for an hour and a half, talked to him about a number of things, prophets ministry and some other stuff too. One of the things that he talked to him about, this was an open vision. He saw him, Brother Hagin said, I saw him just as real as I see you sitting here in the room while he was preaching and telling the story. And he said one of the things that the Lord told him about and and the, the way that he started off the conversation is he said, I want to teach you how to be led by my spirit. And much of the teaching, if not all of the teaching that we have from Brother Hagin that's left from Brother Hagin after he went home to be with the Lord is a result of this vision, the things that Jesus told him. Now, you know, it's an interesting thing, folks, because I don't know what you think when I tell you about things like this. Because... It doesn't happen so much to me, but it used to be that people would come up to me and say, did you hear about so-and-so's vision? Well, folks, with all due respect, and I'm not trying to offend anybody, I couldn't care less what somebody's vision is. I don't care. Yeah, but so-and-so, some preacher, somebody said that Jesus is coming back in September. Well, first of all, the Bible says nobody knows. So that's not a vision that can come from God. And secondly, what would it matter to me? I'm going to live for him today whether he's coming back in September or whether he's coming back next year or next 50 years. So I don't care. I, I, I Again, I'm not trying to offend anybody, but I'm not living off of anybody's vision. But the thing about Brother Hagin's visions, and, and the, at least the ones I know of, the only ones that I've heard him speak of before he went home, they always had to do with the Word. They always had to do with teaching the body of Christ something that we didn't have access to or, or at least was not widespread before then. Well, a vision like that you can hold on to. So I hope you take it for what it's worth. But the thing that, that's interesting to me and the thing that's uh, over the years in meditating over these things, the thing that's shocking to me is the examples that Brother Hagen was given by Jesus himself about how to be led by the Spirit. They were simple things, very simple things. Now, we all want to be led by the Holy Ghost in big things. We all want the Holy Ghost to tell us something that will change the course of our lives. And sometimes there are those occasions. I know that was the case with me. But at, at the time, I had no idea what changed the course of my life. It was just a simple decision. God will lead you the simple things, folks. Because the major changes, the major course corrections of your life come about as simple changes in your life. They start that way. Brother Hagen said that the Lord spoke to him and said, I want to teach you about being led by my spirit. He had reminded him of a, a, a convention that Brother Hagen had been to with a lot of churches, a lot of pastors, a lot of ministers there. And Brother Hagen was pretty popular at the time, at least in that circle of, of uh, ministers and churches. And so Brother Hagin said that almost every guy that, that he knew of had invited him to come and preach at his church at some time in the future. And he said, but there was this one guy that came to him and said, Brother Hagin, do you go to small churches? And Brother Hagin said, well, I go wherever the Lord sends me. And he said, well, we've only got 50 or 60 people, and that's kids and everybody. That's Sunday school, everything that moves, we count it. He said, so we're a small church, and Brother Hagen was in some big churches at the time was a keynote speaker at, the, at that convention that they were in with a couple of thousand people and ministers. He said, so we've only got 50 or 60 people. He said, but boy, we sure would love to have you. If the Lord ever tells you to come, we sure would love to have you. And Brother Hagan thanked him. He said, well, I appreciate the invitation. I'll pray about it and see what the Lord says. Brother Hagan said, I walked away from that conversation just sure that the Lord wouldn't send me to a small place like that. He said, but there were other guys at the same convention that invited him. One guy that was in, uh, that had the third largest church in one of the largest cities in the country. He said, he had invited me. He said, come whenever you can. We'd love to have you. We'll change our schedule. We'd just love to have you. He said, Brother Hagin uh, said about his schedule, he said, you know how you reason things out. He said, I'm going to be in that area, you know, for another meeting in a, at a certain time. And I've got some time Uh, surrounding that so i just thought well i'll just call this guy or write him a letter and confirm that i can come at such and such time so he said i sat down on one occasion started to write the letter of confirmation to him got about halfway through the letter and just without thinking just wadded the paper up and threw it away in the trash can he said the next day he said i thought well i've got to let the guy know i told him i'd let him know So I'll sit down and write him again. He said the second time I write. Now the Lord is reminding him of these things. Talking to him in the vision. This open vision that he's having. He's reminding him. He said you remember the next day you sat down. You wrote the whole letter out. Got down to the place where you signed your name. And you knew something just didn't seem right about this. So you wadded up the paper and threw it away. He said but now every time you've thought about going to that small church. There's just a velvety-like feeling on the inside. It seems like there's a green light associated with that. Jesus said, I'm sitting here. You're seeing me. I'm telling you, don't go to the big church. Go to the small church. But he said, I'll never lead you this way again. Brother Hagin said he never did. He said, "You're you're going to have to be led and learn to be led by my spirit, by the inward witness, just like I lead all of my children. Now, folks... Why in the world would Jesus use something small and something minor, like which church he go to, to teach Brother Hagen about being led by the Spirit? Why wouldn't he look at his ministry or look back at his healing and why wouldn't he use some spectacular point in his, or some spectacular event that occurred at some point in his life and say, here's how I want you to know? Because that's how we all want to know. That's what we want to use as the, as the evidence or the proof. For being led by the spirit of God. We don't accept just little small things. And say oh well that was the leading of God. It's only after we start getting into it. And accept the word to be true. Very few of us start. Accepting small things or small beginnings. Or small occurrences. Minor occurrences in life as being the leading of God. Maybe that's because we're too body conscious. Maybe that's because we want too much physical evidence to prove the word. Folks, the word doesn't need proving. It needs believing. Your job is not to prove the word. Your job is to believe the word. God will prove his word. One thing Brother Hagin said came out of that small church. or two things. He said, one thing is they gave me three times the money that I'd normally gotten it at a big church. So God blesses you when He lead, when you follow His leading into where He wants you to go. But the second thing He said is out of those fifty or sixty people, He said He had fourteen school teachers and two of those were principals of several different school systems around that area. He's on the outskirts of a larger town. So they had fourteen school teachers, twelve school teachers, and two principals. He said every one of them got filled with the Holy Ghost. Well, you can see the influence that they would have had back in those days. It mattered whether somebody was saved in school, I guess. Things might be a little different now. but So you can see why God wanted him to go there. And the Lord even told him, the reason I want you to go to the small church is because half of his church is not filled with the Holy Ghost and I want you to get them filled with the Spirit. But he said about the big church, the big church wouldn't accept the way that you're going to be ministering at the time that you go. You'd be wasting your time to go. I think going to a lot of churches is a waste of time. Hope you don't feel that way about this one. But it's up to you. Now when the spirit of truth has come. Jesus said when the spirit of truth has come. He'll guide you into all truth. He'll guide you into all reality. He'll guide you into the victory. That God has provided for you. Through the work of Jesus. The finished work of Jesus. But each and every one of those things. Starts with just little small moves. Small little moves. I can look back at some things in my life. What if I hadn't gone to Ramah that week with my dad and my brother? You know how I came up with the decision? How I made the decision to go? The life-altering decision for my, in my life and in my experience came about as me thinking, well, I don't have anything else to do. That thought changed the course of my life. Now, looking back at it, I can clearly see that I was being led by the Holy Ghost to do it. But I didn't know there was any such thing as the Holy Ghost leading somebody back then. I didn't know anything about being sensitive to the Holy Ghost. I was open to the Lord, and I was trying to put the Word of God in my heart as much as I knew. It's so funny. My wife found a, uh, uh, the Bible that I had before I went to Ramah. It was at the house. I'd given it to my son, and she found it uh, uh, just this morning. And we were kind of looking through there and, and um, I was looking at some of the notes that I made when I was first trying to put the Word of God in my heart. It's embarrassing what I didn't know. That's where I started. Some of the greatest results, some of the, well, let me say it this way. Some of the decisions and some of the, the, the steps that I took in my life that have created the greatest results in my life were the most casual Decisions that I ever made. But they altered the course of my life. They brought me into the fullness of what God has for me. Now was there some master plan on my part? I'll do this and then I'll do that. But, but of course not. I had no way to know. I couldn't see the future. But that's the way we try to get God to lead us. We say, well, okay, we'll do this and then we'll do that and then we'll do the other and then we'll do the other. We've got it all planned out. Then all we're waiting for is the Lord to lead us. Well, the Bible says, "Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and lean not to your own understanding." You know what I figured out? I it, having believing God for finances used to be a big thing. It's where I started. That man, it was huge for me. And I came to realize that the that everything that I thought up about how God was going to meet my need was exactly the way that it wouldn't happen. Well, when it occurred to me, there was one situation that I had figured out that God would do this and maybe he could do that and maybe you would do the other. I had just about everything that, that was possible for God to meet my needs covered. And I realized it couldn't be any of those things. And I figured out real quick, I better quit thinking this thing out. I'm going to box God in if we can't meet my needs. Folks, there's such a freedom when you just let go. But it's a hard thing to do. It's one of the real keys to spiritual development because we're so used to our heads being in charge. We're so used to having our own plans. We're so used to coming up with our own things. What's our job? What should we do? Let your tongue be the pen of a ready writer. Write the Word of God into your hearts. It all comes back to the same thing, folks, and that's speak the Word. Had somebody say something to me one time here recently. They said, Pastor Mike, it seems like whatever you start off with, whatever subject it is, you always wind up talking about speaking the word. Well, there's a reason for that. That's the source of everything. Speak the word. Speak the word. Yeah, but shouldn't I pray? The devil see the devil tell you you're not doing enough of anything. You're not praying enough. Folks, you can't pray more than I pray. I'm not sleeping now. I wake up most nights. It's a very uncommon thing for me to sleep to the night and not wake up in the middle of the night and pray. Very uncommon. I've gotten to where I enjoy it. It used to aggravate me, but now I've gotten to where I enjoy it. I had the devil tell me. He tells me all the time stuff like this. Well, you're not worshiping God enough. You got to be kidding, folks! If the value of worshiping God comes from the amount of time you spend worshiping, I got it made. If the value of worshiping God comes down to to uh, calling things that be not as though they were and thanking God for those things that are unseen, I got it made. If the value of worshiping God comes down to counting it joy when you're in the middle of trouble, I got it made. If the value of The worshiping God comes down to how it sounds. I'm doomed. (laughs) But the devil will tell you you're never doing enough. And if you're not careful, you get over into works. Oh, you're not confessing the word enough. All you got to do is say it one time from your heart. Now I'm not suggesting that you don't say it over and over again because it's important and helpful if we do to remind ourselves and remind God of what we're standing for. But one time from your heart is good enough. Jesus cursed the fig tree one time. He said, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. If Jesus is part of most faith churches today, he'd have gone down the road saying, I believe it's dead, I believe it's dead, I believe it's dead, I believe it's dead, I believe it's dead. dead." But that's not what he did. He said it once. He knew what he believed. Once was good enough. See, the devil always tell you you're not doing enough. There's one commandment do you remember what the turn with the, we'll close with this. Turn with the over to 1 John chapter 3. I think it's chapter 3. We'll find it. Let's start in verse 21. Here's a verse of scripture about following your heart, being led by the Spirit. First John chapter 3, verse 21. It says. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. Now, please get what he's saying. If your heart condemns you not, heart meaning your spirit, if your spirit doesn't condemn you, how would your spirit condemn you? There's only one way, and that's through your conscience. That's why being sensitive to your conscience and keeping your conscience clear is so important. Now, your conscience, somebody asked a group of kindergartners, what's your conscience? One of the boys said, it's the voice inside me that tells me not to hit my sister. He doesn't know how scriptural he is. (laughs) It's the voice on the inside of you, the voice of your spirit that tells you when you've done wrong. Now, your conscience, if your conscience is anything like mine, your conscience doesn't go through, speak to you all day long about what you should do unless you know there's something you haven't done. Only time I hear hear from my conscience is when I've done the wrong thing. Otherwise, I'm just acting on what the word says. And my conscience is clean. But when I've done the wrong thing or I've failed to do the right thing that I know that I should have done, something that the Lord has spoken to me about or the Word tells me to do and that I haven't done, that's when my conscience bothers me. And please understand, it's not the Holy Ghost that condemns you when you do wrong. It's your own conscience. It's your own spirit. The Bible says Jesus was real clear about this. Jesus said in John's gospel that the only thing that the Holy Ghost will reprove or convict somebody of is rejecting Jesus. Everything else is the voice of your own spirit. So notice what John says. He says, beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. So many times people are saying because the devil tells them they believe the lie. The devil says, well, you can't get, you can't get received from God. You can't be healed because of something you've done wrong. And in many cases, people will use a verse of Scripture out of context and and let it rob them of the truth, rob them of the blessings of God. I, I can't tell you how many times I've had people come and say, Pastor Mike, I need you to pray for me. Well, what do you need me to pray about? Well, I, I, there may be some secret sin in my life. I've always been amazed by that statement. What in the world is secret sin? Well, David said, cleanse me, Lord, from secret sin. Well, that's a spiritually dead prayer. That's from a spiritually dead man. It's impossible for a Christian to have secret sin in his life. Impossible. It's impossible for you to not be reproved or convicted by your own spirit, your conscience, if you have done wrong. Now, even if you ignore it, you still know you've done wrong. So there's no such thing as a secret sin. Brother Hagin used to say it this way. He said, what is secret sin? I've always been there when I sinned. That's kind of simple, but it's true. Well, what does it mean? It means people are letting the devil beat them up and make them think things that aren't true rather than take the word of God for what it says. So, beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. If you've got a clear conscience, your faith is working. Now, what's the one thing your conscience is going to convict you about? Walking in love. And faith works by love. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. And here's what confidence will do for you. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him. Because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. He's not talking about works. He's talking about living according to the word. Being a doer of the word to such a degree that your conscience isn't convicting you. And this is his commandment. Are you ready? This is what God commands you to do. Here's the New Testament New Covenant commandment. And this is a commandment, number one, that we should believe in the name of Jesus and love one another. In other words, do you know what the commandment is? Believe in the name of Jesus, meaning believe in what the Word of God says to be true. We could say it this way, walk by faith and walk in love. That's the New Covenant commandment, folks. That's it. That's all there is. Now, where's works in that? Where's praying enough in that? Where's worshiping God enough in that? It's not there. Now praying is going to be a result of believing in Jesus. Worshiping God is going to be a result of, of a thankful heart because the word of God is true because you believe. But there's no works there. None whatsoever. None whatsoever. This is the commandment. That we believe the name of Jesus. The word own is not there, by the way, in that word, in that uh, verse. Believe the name of Jesus and love one another as he gave commandment. That's all we have to do. That's all we have to do. Now, if there's sin in your life, repent of it. Then it's gone. Then you're clean. Then you're forgiven. Then it's over. There's no making up for it. There's no penance you have to pay. There's no time period before you're in back in God's good grace. Once you confess it, it's gone. So let it go. Now you're back in place where you can have confidence toward God. Yeah, but I've messed it. i messed up and I've missed it so many times in life. Well, join the club. Who hasn't? If missing it in your life was a disqualifier for God being able to help you, none of us have help. So let go of your past. This is his commandment to believe the name of Jesus and love one another. That's all there is. That is the Christian life. That's the life of victory right there. Yeah, but what am I supposed to do about my situation? I'm facing some real tests. Believe the the name of Jesus. Well, how long is it going to take? I don't know. What's your alternative? Well, I've got to do something. Pastor Mike, I've got to take action. But well, if you're taking action contrary to the leading of the Holy Ghost, good luck with that. I, I just can't wait though. Things have gotten in such a state, I just can't wait. You're talking about being at peace and letting the Lord lead you. I just can't wait. Sure you can. You're in the best position to learn how. Yeah, but other people are depending on me. The bank is calling. I need direction from God. Well do what you can find your hand to put your hand to do that you know is right and trust God from that point. How's that gonna help? Folks, I'm not God. I don't have all the answers. But He does. And He's got a way out. There's a way of escape for every person in every person's situation. Heaven and earth will pass away, but the Word of God cannot fail. And this is his commandment, to believe the name of Jesus and walk in love toward one another. That's it. That's all there is to it. Thank God for the Spirit of God within us. He'll lead you into victory every time. He'll lead you into victory no matter what hole you're in, no matter if you dug the hole yourself. He'll lead you out. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you for the privilege that we have to be led by the Holy Ghost. What a wonderful thing it is to have confidence towards you, Lord. What a wonderful thing it is to know that where we've missed it, all we have to do is confess our sin. And once we've done that, it's done. We don't have to keep confessing our sin. We don't have to keep feeling bad about it. We simply act on your word and trust you to make it right. Lord, you know there are people in this room that are facing difficulties, financial difficulties, physical difficulties, family difficulties. I thank you, Father, that you've got the answer. I thank you, Father, that the Holy Ghost will lead and guide each and every one of us to victory. Show us the way, Lord. Show us the way. Cause us to know from the inside, from our hearts, what steps to take if any where to move when we need to move and where to stay still when we need to stay still Lord you know how to work these things together where we can't even imagine thank you Father that the Holy Ghost guides us into victory the truth of the word which is the victory that overcomes the world thank you for guiding us into our healing Lord thank you for guiding us into abundance Whoever we can pay our bills and provide for our families, Lord, we thank you that you're the God of the miraculous. But Lord, don't let us miss the supernatural by looking for the spectacular. Help us to see how miraculous it is, just for a simple, small leading on the inside of us, that green light, that velvety-like feeling on the inside. Lord, what a wonderful thing it is to walk by the Spirit of God according to His direction and His guidance. Lord, we thank You that Your plan for us is better than anything we could try to devise for ourselves. And all we have to do is follow You into the fullness of it. We love You, Lord. We thank You for recreating us New creatures in Christ Jesus. For writing your word into our hearts. Using our mouth. Our tongue. As the pen. Thank you Father that your word is true. In Jesus precious name. Amen. Amen. Well God bless you. Thank you for being with us. We love you. Have a great day. Come back and be with us tonight if you can.